Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. No one is written about more extensively in the books of the Old Testament than David. Not Abraham, not Sarah, not Rebecca, not Moses, not Jacob, not Rachel. He is depicted as a valorous warrior of great renown, a poet, a musician credited for composing many of the psalms contained in the Psalter. King David is portrayed as a righteous and effective leader, both in battle and in providing civil and criminal justice. The prophets regard him as the ancestor of the future Messiah. As the king of Israel and the founder of Jerusalem, David's reign marks the high point for Israel in the Hebrew Bible. Therefore, the anointing of David by the prophet Samuel is a climactic moment in the biblical narrative. Now, David was not the first king of Israel. The first one was Saul, a man selected by Samuel for his good looks, tall stature, and distinct lineage. Through a series of unfortunate circumstances and poor decisions, Saul's kingship is seen as a failure and literarily serves as a counterpoint to the success of David's. Upon the unraveling of Saul's reign, preparations are made by God and Samuel to select a new king. God commissions Samuel to go to Bethlehem, outside the reach of Saul's northern kingdom. And when Saul arrives, the elders of the area are terrified for they tremble from the political risk at hand, for they know that Samuel is a king maker and a king breaker. Samuel proceeds to review Jesse's sons to see which one God has selected. Eliab is the first one to intrigue Samuel. He's tall and he's handsome, the same criteria that he used to identify Saul as king but they are not here to appoint another Saul. Six other sons are paraded past him, but none of them will suffice. Samuel then asks Jesse, are all of your sons here? Jesse tells him that he has one more, and upon Samuel's instructions, someone fetches the absent lad, tending to the family's herd of sheep. And when David arrives, it's clear. He is the one that the prophet has been seeking. And from his horn, Samuel pours oil on the young boy to see God's election and commitment to David as Israel's future king. Now, this story underscores one of the most basic themes of the entire biblical narrative. The last shall be first, 
and God finds possibilities for grace in the most unexpected places and through the most unlikely people. God's selection of David upturns the usual arrangements of power and influence in the ancient world. He is a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons, from the village of Bethlehem, and from a family with no established pedigree. This story serves to remind us that the unlikely vessels of God's grace can come from anywhere, and often from places we couldn't possibly imagine. And maybe that is where we want to end the story. It's a sweet tale about the least of these, of how the last shall be first, of how big things happen in the small corners of the world, and of how greatness can come from the margins. And that's not a wrong reading of the text. It's a common and beloved interpretation often shared by biblical scholars and preachers. However, the story of David's anointing is by no means simple when we situate the story within the wider biblical narrative. The lessons to be drawn from it can range widely, depending on the interpretive context. And as the beloved Presbyterian minister and TV personality, Mr. Rogers, used to say, the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. Prior to the appointment of David, Saul's failure was not merely a deception of appearances or an unraveling of his own making. Now, at first, he appeared to demonstrate some leadership qualities, but his authority was quickly undermined by unclear instructions and unmanageable circumstances. Given little latitude for decisions and grace for his mistakes, Saul's psyche unravels. He painfully stumbles along until he, he is rejected for showing mercy to an enemy of all things. And after David is selected to be Saul's successor, rivalry and bitter hostility erupts between them. As biblical scholar Patricia Tull observes, as Saul's story comes to its tragic end, David's story unfolds with what might seem at first to be naive zeal and soon becomes mixed with crafty and even morally objectionable behavior. David acquires a taste for conquest that leads him to disgraceful actions that will shadow him for the rest of his life and beyond, relentlessly destroying his own family. Two entire kingdoms and several surrounding nations are time after time after time are upended by his and his family's actions. The tall and handsome king is no merely an inept ruler, and the young shepherd boy is not purely innocent. The very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. Old Testament scholar John Collins remarks that so often the Bible is seen as a book about God and God's judgment. 
Yet in so many ways, the Bible is about human beings and their humanity, including their capacity for goodness and evil. And if we cannot trust the prophets or leaders, like David, who is described as a man, a man after God's very own heart, then we must learn a certain wariness of those who claim to fully know God's mind or pronounce God's will. After all, theology is made here on earth, not in heaven. We live in a time when leaders and prophets rarely hesitate to make declarations about the state of affairs of the world. People on either side of the political spectrum find warrant for calling down God's judgment on those whose sins they decry. And it's dangerous when we begin to draw entrenched divisions between us and them. This week, the Washington Post published an article about Megan Phelps Roper, a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church. She vividly remembers standing in a picket line on a Kansas street corner as a blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked five-year-old, clutching a sign she couldn't even read yet. And the sign said, gays are worthy of death. Growing up, Megan regularly attended such pickets, usually surrounded by her large family. Her grandfather was the late Reverend Fred Phelps Sr., the founder of this notorious group. But in her 20s, Megan abruptly divorced her family and stopped picketing. And she credits Twitter as the source of her transformation. For it was through Twitter, of all things, that she learned about the goodness of people. Strangers would send her messages filled with rage and hatred, and she would respond with cute smiley faces, pop culture references, and Bible verses. With her angry critics caught off guard, conversations would ensue, and it was civil. Through this experience, Megan learned that, as she put it, you don't have to abandon your beliefs or your values, only your scorn. Her experience was a powerful lesson in how to deflect and deflate the vitriol. She learned that life could not be so neatly divided between good and bad, dark and light, heroes and villains, us, them. Megan admits that she didn't necessarily change the opinions of her Twitter adversaries, but talking to them in a new way certainly changed her. She realized that she could no longer justify her actions with the Westboro Baptist Church, and she left. I don't have to tell you that we lived in a polarized time. When, what, where, when, wherever you stand, people want to betray that we live in an easily divisible world. And this is a story that we might tell ourselves because it's an easier one to swallow. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have convictions about important things. But the biblical narrative helps us to realize that our relationship with ourselves, with one another, with the wider world might be more nuanced and more complex than we want to admit or let on. Perhaps one of the reasons that so much is written about David in the Bible is that it takes a lot of time and a lot of attention to capture the nuances, the contradictions, the towering heights, and the fathomless lows, the sheer messiness of a life like that. We go back to the life of David to begin to comprehend it all. But perhaps we also go back because there is something in his life that is particularly helpful to reflect upon, and just for those reasons. His life and his character cannot be easily summarized. He is neither good nor bad, at least not entirely. He's a complex mixture of the best and the worst. The very sort of person Mr. Rogers may have had in mind when he said, the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. And yet, and here is the most important point, God can work through such a flawed instrument, which is a good thing, because flawed instruments is all that God has to work with. And that is nothing short of the good news, because it means, in part, that God can also be at work through you and through me. Amen.